we are in the fourth week of our Red Letter Challenge and the third of our themes. You remember that we started with being. And boy, the, the music that uh, Jess and Kyle gave us, just this last song, is so about being. You know, that more song really hits the nail on the head. Being with the Lord is such an essential part of our red letter relationship with God, right? You know, to do it like Jesus. And this is a time to consider the relationship with God as you've experienced it up to this point. And I'll, I'll remind you from what we said on the first Sunday in the service about being, we talked about how it's kind of like not God's fault if you're having a hard time being with God. It isn't like God doesn't meet you where you are, right? And so we remember that being with God is all about what we just sang in that song about having more. You have to want more, you know? Uh, how else can I put it except that when you really crave something and you really like something, you want more. So some of you want more chocolate. Some of you want more pasta and spaghetti sauce and all of that. I mean, you know, whatever it is you love, it's easy to want more. And in almost every aspect of life, more and more and more ends up being too much and then it becomes a burden to us. But you cannot want more than enough of being with God. That's something that comes in such a wonderfully measured we response from the Lord that you can't overdo it. But we are all guilty, I think, of underdoing it. The next topic is the one that we're wrapping up this week but not done with, and that is the week of forgiving. How did the week of forgiveness go for you? How did that go for you? Did you pray that prayer on page 89 in the book? That was the prayer where you forgive yourself, where you accept God's forgiveness and grace through Jesus Christ. Did you understand this week that all of the things that you would like to forgive and forget in other people who have wronged you or something, it really, you cannot do that adequately until you accept God's grace and forgiveness and then forgive yourself. That's a tough one, isn't it? Because it's really easier for us to be mad at people and say, well, I can forgive, but I'm not going to forget. Well, you know, if you think about it, you're still holding on to it if you refuse to forget. Now, if you think forgetting means that you're gonna go back and take more abuse or get ripped off again and again and again, that's not what forgetting means. Forgetting is canceling the debt. You feel like somebody owes you something and you keep holding on to the hope that you're gonna get what you deserve from them. Forgiving and forgetting means forgetting the debt, canceling the debt, letting go of the debt. They don't owe you anything anymore. They are who they are. They do what they do. You can't change them, but you can change you. You can change your attitude. 
and thus change the whole way that you experience forgiveness. Because this is exactly what being forgiven by God is, right? You've accepted God's grace because you accepted that you need it. You realize that you are in a situation like that person that you're holding a grudge against. Let's see if I can flesh this out for a minute. I know we did the forgiveness message already, but before we can move on, we've got to understand the incredibly important impact of this. You hold something against another person because you feel like they owe you. Until they can admit that they wronged me and make it right, I will not cancel that debt. Meaning I'll stay angry with them for the rest of my life. <laughs> I talked to a guy today who's asked me for prayer after church because he's going to visit some in-laws that he never can get along with. Isn't it funny how in family especially, we always get together decade after decade holding uncanceled debts against each other? I'm gonna be 60 years old in several weeks, and you know what? If I'm still angry with my brother about something he did when I was 12 and he was 16, <laughs> I've got a problem. <laughs> Think about it. And yet I've been to funerals which brought people together for the first time in decades who hadn't been together in decades, and fights broke out. Isn't that the dumbest thing you ever heard? Or maybe you've been there. So suppose you are unwilling to cancel a debt that you're sure someone owes you, and maybe you're thinking, if they would just realize how much they owe me an apology, if they could just suddenly have an awakening, an epiphany, and look at me and go, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, I never understood how badly I hurt you. That's what you want, right? Well. I'm moving in a different direction from here, but I'll just leave you with this. It won't make you feel any better if it ever happens. It won't make you feel any better because you have to realize that the problem is yours. Well, you have another problem that requires you to approach God the same way that you are requiring the debtor to approach you. You have to go before God and say, I had no idea how distant I was from you until I started thinking about being with you. Really thinking about what being with you is all about, Lord. And it started to dawn on me that I'm separate from you. And I don't like it. And what's more is I've realized how desperately twisted I've been in my approach to you, and I owe you an apology. When you do the very thing you think other people should do for you in your relationship with God, you're on your way to what Forgiveness Week was really all about. You have to repent. You have to feel genuine remorse about your relationship with God and what the impediments to that relationship are. I hope that the forgiving week was like that for you. This week, we're talking about serving. And if you're wondering why I spent so much time re-preaching last week's message to get you set for serving, it's because you will not serve in the spirit of scripture 
and what the Holy Spirit means for you to understand through the red letters of your Bible until you have accepted God's grace, accepted your guilt and shame and sin, and then released it to God's grace until you realize that Jesus Christ was God's answer to the problem of sin. That God, despite the fact that God owes you a severe punishment and owes me a severe punishment, he's decided rather to pay a price higher than any, any you could conceive of. In fact, a higher price than anything God had ever paid for before. You have to think of it that way, and you'll understand more in a minute when we get into the scripture, but you have to understand that it cost God everything God could give in order to save you for eternal life with God. And that salvation leads to your repentance and your forgiveness and your new birth into an eternal existence. That's why you serve. That's why I like to say over and over and over again, we worship God because we just can't help it. Because when you realize with whom you are dealing, it should require of you a kind of awe and reverence and worship that is hard, if not impossible, to resist. I know it's a little raggedy way to say things, but I'm always tickled when I think about this concept in the terms that Dave Ramsey uses in Financial Peace University. He talks about giving financially and he says, look, sometimes you just have to remember that you owe God because if God wants to, he can wipe you off the planet and leave a grease spot where you were standing. Hey, you gotta snicker a little bit when it, because it's true. You know, there was a famous comedian who used to be really cool until he wasn't, who liked to say, son, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. And so it's important at times for us to remember that we are talking about a holy, divine creator, supreme in every conceivable and inconceivable way, who is above and beyond everything God ever created. And this very being desires a personal relationship with you. Is that not nuts? Isn't that kind of silly? Why would that level of supremacy, superiority, want to mingle with the likes of me. But he wants it so bad that he paid more than he could, almost more than he could afford in order to get that to happen so that God could be with you and you could be with God. And so that forgiveness from such a divine and supreme being who has every reason and justification to unload wrath upon us. If you read your Bible, there's plenty of evidence of what happens when God's wrath is poured out and it will come again. 
I don't preach hellfire and brimstone as a rule, but once in a while we need to understand that it isn't just about how much God loves us, but it's almost about how absurd it is that a God who could simply wipe us out with the word from his mouth and start clean has chosen rather to invest in us over and over and over again, which makes us kind of beholden to God. That's the point. We worship him because we can't help it, because to think about it will drive you a little crazy unless you worship him. And there is no better evidence of worship than in service. Whom do you serve? Let's look at scripture for a minute. Mark chapter 12. I'm going to look at verse 41. Mark 12. Starting at verse 41, I, I didn't get the page numbers out there for you this time, but you know, if you just open those Bibles to the Gospels, that's about two thirds of the way to the back, and then uh, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? So Matthew and then Mark. Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 41. This is a familiar story to people who have been in church most of their lives, and it goes like this. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. I should point out to you that in Jewish tradition, we don't pass the plate during worship. They don't believe that's cool. Rather, everybody pays membership dues, you know, like on a monthly basis, quarterly basis, or annually. And this is sort of the ancient form of that. People went to the church office to pay for their relationship with that church and or synagogue. And so that's what we're looking at here. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which together make up a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So Jesus, in this observation, is telling us what the real servant looks like. A servant is one who waits to be told what to do, where to go how to dress, how, what to wear, what, to, what, to, uh, what time to be there, what time. Think about what a servant is. Not a slave, a servant. Come on, if you've watched Downton Abbey, you can get a little bit closer to this, I'm sure. What do servants do? They wait for the bidding of the master and they do as they are expected to do. This woman... She has gone to the place of worship to pay her, her tithe and she has given all that she has because she's worshiping God like someone who just can't help it. Now, I want to make it clear that in this story, as with most everything Jesus says in that red ink, there's so much depth and meaning that goes beyond the obvious and it would be even richer if you understood their culture as they were living it, but we can get there. And so you have to understand, he's not picking on people for being rich. Being rich isn't a thing that, that is bad in and of itself. It's 
perfectly okay to, to be rich and prosperous. In fact, I, I know I'm gonna sound just a tiny bit political, but I don't do politics from the pulpit for politics sake, but, but there is this crazy belief in our, in our land that I've always found troubling, and it's this belief that somehow there's this big pool of money somewhere, and the rich people got more than their, their fair share, and the poor people got less than their fair share. Well, that's just not economically sound, okay? That is an erroneous belief about economics. It doesn't work that way. People who generate money and then earn accordingly offer up one part of the economy and people who are unable or unwilling to generate money offer up another part of the economy. So what Jesus is saying here is not a judgment on wealth. It's a judgment on the frame of mind of the giver. What he's saying is, is the people who gave out of abundance were really not doing anything out of a sense of urgency in their worship. They weren't worshiping God because they just couldn't help it. They were just paying their dues and going through the motions. So the question then, who or whom do we serve, is about your frame of mind, your heart. The widow is entirely devoted to God and she views her relationship with the synagogue or with the temple, whatever you wanna call it, your place of worship as an expression of that. And what he's saying is that some of those people are going through the motions and it's, it's just easy for them to drop a check in the box for whatever amount. Now, I'm going to tell you right now that we're really fortunate in this church to have some very generous givers who often underwrite some of the biggest projects that keep this business of ours afloat as a business. And I'm very grateful to that. But I will tell you that Jesus is not condemning wealth, but God, God does value the size of your heart more than the size of your gift. It's what goes on in you at the time of giving or serving that makes all the difference. And so... What, what Jesus is driving home here very clearly is, did it hurt? Was it a sacrificial gift? For that woman it was. I don't know if you've ever seen a widow's mite, but it's about the size of a button on a woman's blouse. It's just a little small thing. Two of them to make up a penny. And they are easy to get if you go over to Israel because they were such a common piece of currency and they're so tiny they find them everywhere i bought one a real honest to goodness 2000 year old widow's mite you know like the only piece of archaeology i own you know but it's only because they were that common you know how many of you have a penny jar or something at home i think us older folks are a little more prone to do that but you know you might have 80 dollars worth of pennies in a jar somewhere That is the heart of the woman expressed in her humility and her authenticity in her just can't help it worship. And there are people who will drop $500 in the offering plate in that same spirit and praise God for the glory it gives. If they diverted that money from something that they want 
Or, you know, like when you take your children to the store and they say, I need Cocoa Puffs. I need that toy, right? We're just the same when we grow up. Well, if you divert your resources away from your comfort, your pleasure, your fulfillment, and you do something that looks like worshiping God because you just can't help it, then you're catching on to the nature of serving as it's defined, defined in the red letters, okay? That's, that's the whole purpose. And I, I'm hitting this hard because this is, this is the heart of the matter when we're trying to get to the point where we really understand what Jesus wants us to do and be, you've got to know that his actions and his words are not meant to condemn things on a superficial level. In fact, the English translation might not even say the right thing about our superficial 21st century point of view. I mean, when has it ever been uncool for the ones who have not to criticize the ones who have, you know? It's always fun to say, well, the rich don't have any problems. They don't have, you know, whatever. My point is, don't blame scripture for that attitude. Don't blame the Bible if that's your attitude. The Bible is not saying, Jesus is not saying that there's anything wrong with some people having more money than others. What the Bible is saying is that when you make sacrifices because you just can't help it, that's how much you love the master of all creation, the creator of everything that is, was, and ever will be, who descended to be like us and then save us for a relationship with him, which is utterly absurd. You do things like that. That's the point. Listen to what Jesus did to drive home the point. John chapter 13 this time, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts, okay? So we're going to John chapter 13. This is going to take a little longer, but this is a, sir, a story you're going to hear again in here on that Thursday before Easter Sunday. John 13 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now, I just want to save a minute. Do you hear what John's trying to say? He's saying exactly what I was trying to say, but better. Remember who this is that you're dealing with. This is, this is God. This is the ultimate supreme being. This is the one who spoke everything that exists into existence. This is the one who, pardon the phrase, can take you out and leave a grease spot where you were. That's who just was introduced to us again by John. And this is what he said that person did. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing 
you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all are clean. Now, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and it is right, because so I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you, I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. And I'll stop there. See what Jesus did? You see the point he's trying to make there? It's so much more than just what it appears to be. He says, if you don't do this, if you don't let me do this for you, you won't, take, you won't be able to take part in what comes next. Now, why would he say such a thing? Is he saying that those 12, 11 guys, if he doesn't wash their feet, then it's all over? No, he's speaking metaphorically as well as literally. He's showing them by example, he, the Lord of all creation, as John makes sure we understand, has taken upon himself the lowliest servant's job in the entire household. And most of you know this part, but, but think about it in a little bit deeper terms. He has knelt on the dirty floor, naked, except for the towel around his waist and his undergarment, and stripped of all that makes him great in the eyes of humans, the clothes, the place at the table, the way people follow him and look at him and honor and revere him. Now it's just this topless man kneeling in the dirt, washing dirt from people's feet. The Lord of all, the King of Kings, what is he saying to us? Well, it's a prediction about what's getting ready to happen just as surely as the next story in that sequence is by way of the cup and the bread and what we call the Lord's Supper. He's going to go into the dirt and he's going to absorb all that is filthy about us and take it upon himself and wash it clean with his blood. And he says, if you get it, you got it. He says, if you get it, you've got it. Because this is the nature of your salvation, but it is also the expression of your salvation as you too serve in 
that same way. Does he mean always take the dirty job? No. Does he mean that you should be humble and meek so that people don't see you trying to elevate yourself? No, he's really not saying that at all. It's not about you. That's the thing we all have to get through our heads and it's so hard. It's so hard to serve like him is to serve him. And to serve him is something we do because we just can't help it. And that's the whole story. And it does nothing for us. Here's a passage from Philippians chapter two. I'd love for you to look at that one as well and just keep going forward in your New Testament and you'll get there. This is one of my favorites of all scripture. It's a song actually that the new believers in the early church sang. And Paul quotes it by saying, have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. You see what's going on there? When you serve, if it's not about you in any way, shape, or form, you're probably getting it right. And so the question then is, is then what do we do? What do we do? How does our service play out in real life? And I'll give you this and we'll be done. Well, it looks like Jesus on his knees washing dirt off of people's feet. But how do you do that? And, and what is Jesus calling you to? Well, here's the thing. If you take everything we've said up to this point, even the last few weeks, and you sum it up, it makes you understand that you are utterly and completely devoted to this person, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, now King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Master of the Kingdom, to which you have transferred your citizenship through new birth in the Holy Spirit. And so you devoted yourself to that. Well, I want you to think about anybody you serve, an employer, uh, you serve on some team or committee here at the church, and, and so someone is, is providing direction and guidance and you serve in that spirit. And so think about anybody you serve. Sometimes you serve people because you have to. Sometimes you serve them because you want to. But either way, what is your principal concern as their servant? To do what they want. To care about what they care about. To devote yourself to meeting the needs that they express, whoever this is. And so if Jesus is all this to you now because you can't help it, you want to do whatever he wants you to do. And his agenda is your agenda for love's sake. Well, 
We know from scripture that he hates oppression and chaos. So you want to serve him? Don't create oppression and chaos and do whatever you can to diminish oppression and chaos wherever you encounter it. For the record, I don't believe that institutional churches like this one exist to be social agencies and activist groups. I don't think that's what Christians should be doing. I believe as individual Christians, you will be called whatever you're called to, which might be a social justice issue, but I don't think that we want to worship a social justice agenda. We want to worship Christ the King who cares about people who are oppressed. See, it's that dang thing keeps coming back over and over again. It's not about things, it's about people. It's not about what you do, but why you do it. And that makes all the difference. And so what do you do? Well, you care about what he cares about. If you're a parent, I guarantee you, he cares about your relationship with your children. If you're a husband or a wife, he cares about your relationship with your husband or wife. Worshiping and serving the Lord looks like that. If you are in a relationship with other people and it is a generative relationship that somehow helps to together serve the Lord for some purpose that the Lord is clearly invested in, then that might be what it looks like. I've always marveled, I thought about this this week and I just couldn't escape it, I had to say it. I've always marveled at how fond people are of quoting Mother Teresa and talking about Mother Teresa. But if there's one thing that she was known for that few people like to talk about, it is her invitation to join her in Calcutta and do the nasty, gnarly, disgusting, horrible things she did for people. Because that's how she loved and served the Lord. But it's so much easier to quote her. Pop one of her sayings up on Facebook or something, but that isn't what serving the Lord is. And you know, you may not have to do nasty, dirty, awful things. I don't know, that's between you and the Lord, but you must do it because you just can't help it. That's how much you're crazy about the one who has lowered himself to our state to save us and lift us up to his state and then invites us to join him in caring about what he cares about. And yet on judgment day, there will be people who stand before God and say, Lord, I was good. So I'm entitled to this place in heaven, right? And the Lord's gonna say, well, if only that's how it worked. But you never did anything hard and you never did it for the sake of love for my son. You just did what looked good and felt good. And so you really devoted yourself even in meaningful things for your own sake. Because somehow you confused your conscience with the Holy Spirit. Somehow you confused your good deeds with acts of spirit-infused service. I don't know what the Lord's going to do at that point. I have a pretty good idea, but this isn't that type of message, so I'll just leave you to do some research. Look up the mercy seat, the Bema judgment, the 
great white throne judgment. But here's, here's another picture I have in my mind. And forgive me for my imagination on this one because I'm, I'm basically faced with two scenarios in my head. I see this poor widow woman type person who's always worshiped God because they just can't help it, standing before God in total humility and meek and mild reverence before our awesome God saying nothing, expecting nothing, deserving nothing, simply standing there in awe of our God. And here's scenario number one. Our God from his white, amazing throne reaches this mighty finger down and raises this chin and says, welcome home, right? That's scenario number one. Scenario number two is like it before this person ever speaks before God at that great white throne judgment, Jesus steps over, grabs him gently by the arm and says, dad, this one's with me. I don't know, you take whichever one you like. The point is we won't have to justify ourselves before God because Jesus is our justification. We won't have to justify our deeds our words or anything else before God because Jesus is our justification. What will please the Lord on that day is to see someone who devoted themselves to loving Christ and serving Christ. Now you understand what we mean when we send you out after service each week by saying, now go out to love and serve the Lord. (laughs) Loving and serving the Lord probably looks like this. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you. You have blessed us. We are humble. Let us be more contrite than ever now. Let us be changed and transformed in every way that will serve and glorify you, we pray. Amen.